Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbV company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Happy to be uh, um, helping moderate this Back to Practice episode. I think it's a wonderful um, um, sort of place where everyone can kind of come together post-COVID. We've learned so much in these past few months. Uh, you know, Gary and I were doing our, our podcast from the very beginning about this, and, and, and we kind of took a break for a while. And, and now, you know, we're kind of, uh, we're still very much in the middle of COVID, but it seems like a, a completely different, uh, 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 you know, time uh, from back in March. And, and with that comes uh, new things that we've learned, uh, not only about the virus and, and how to keep ourselves safe, but, um, you know, really new things that we can be doing in our practice uh, to not only survive, but to thrive uh, in this post-COVID environment. Um, so I'm really, really appreciative of uh, the sponsors for uh, getting us all together um, and, uh, and most appreciative of my esteemed colleagues here on this panel. Um, uh, you guys know them, uh, they're very well known, um, uh, but just to give you a little bit of a, an intro, um, joining us team, we have to Dr. Dr. Rania Habash, who is the Assistant Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology and Medical Director of Technology Innovation at Baskin Palmer. Uh, we have Samitra Kandawal, who's an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Baylor, also the Medical Director of the Lions Eye Bank of Texas. Uh, Lance Kugler is the Physician CEO at Kugler Vision and Associate uh, or Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at Trulson Eye Institute in Omaha. And of course, the one and only Paul Singh, who's the president of the Eye Centers of Racine, Kenosha uh, in Wisconsin. Many thanks to all of you uh, for coming on to discuss different strategies and solutions for this new phase of practice uh, post-COVID. Um, the, the style is, uh, you know, we're going to kind of, each of us have some individual topics, but we want to make it kind of conversational. Um, and uh, certainly if there are any questions or anything from, uh, from the live chat there, the team at BMC is going to uh, get them over to us. It looks like we're streaming live on Facebook now. So, um, you know, uh, we're going to kind of start off with Rania. Uh, Rania, uh, telemedicine is not something new to you. It's, got, I, I just, it's so funny from when I talk to people like you and Roger, you know, it's like the entire world finally kind of got the clue <laughs> that telemedicine is a thing. And, and uh, you know, maybe you can kind of talk about um, uh, sort of, you know, uh, your perspective on this and, and sort of how, do, how people who are, who are coming back to practice might be able to start using this more. Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for having me here, by the way. Um, I, I love talking about telemedicine because it really works um, and it makes a big difference in my practice. And um, I just love to share that with everyone else, especially moving back to practice now. Um, it used to be, to use your words, Blake, it, it was kind of a stopgap measure, you know, something to really help us in a pinch. And now we've I think everyone has sort of realized that it's here to stay and it's kind of, you know, what I like to say, a better, smarter way to do medicine. Um, so we're seeing kind of the evolution of medicine actually. And um, it's not just the regular typical old telemedicine visits that we know uh, from before. There's been so many creative kind of um, different varieties of telemedicine. And at Bascom Palmer, we've really adopted a lot of these crazy things that we all kind of thought were crazy in the beginning, but now they've sort of become a way of life for us. <laughs> I wonder if anybody like uh, Paul or, 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 or Sumitra, are you guys using telemedicine even now? I mean, uh, now that people are kind of back into practice and seeing, you know, seeing patients in clinic, uh, are you guys uh, are still doing some telemedicine or not really? 
Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with Rania. I think it's it's become now almost a part of our standard of care. And actually, patients now are accepting it. I think they've they've understood this is a new reality. And, and in fact, I've had comments from patients who said they feel they feel it's more intimate <laughs> with me versus, you know, you have 18 lights on, there's eight, you know, hundred people running around, you're like getting called buzzing, and it's like just you and me, like we are now, we're just kind of hanging out and talking. So the patients <laughs> actually like it. But what we found is that because we have such a backlog of patients, they was for me personally as a glaucoma specialist. I had to see only people who needed surgery, you know, because we had so these people who were kind of backed up. So they're like, Paul, you don't have the time to see all these IOP checks and dry checks and all these kind of standard patients who are stable. So what we decided to do is like, let's do telemedicine for those patients. They come in, do a hybrid visit where they get the OCT, they get the you know visual field, whatever it might be, or and a non-contact IOP measurement, like let's see, ORF, the ocular response analyzer. And then I just call them at home. So I have a nice list of patients at the end of the day where I just say, hey, your fields are stable, your nerves look good, your pressures are pretty good, you're good for six months, we'll come back and I'll do more of a thorough exam with you in the office. And so they're actually liking that. Patients are so happy and it's helping free my schedule up to see those consults. Yeah, I think that's a really good good point actually. Um, and that's what we're doing at Bascom too. You know, it's exactly like what you said. It's it be becomes sort of like a hospital without walls now. So on the very same day, we can see patients at like five different Bascom Palmer campuses. <laughs> and the patients don't have to drive to our one campus. They can go to any location that's most convenient for them, specifically for these tests that we're, we're doing. And then, you know, later on, we'll follow up with them with a video call or a phone call. Um, so and, and then after hours and on the weekends too, we're doing the same thing. So it's really been able to expand our schedules. Um, and now you've got all of us in every location, um, even on, on Saturdays and after hours, that's great. <laughs> and, and I will say I'm more efficient now. I know Blake, you probably noticed, you said you can, you're seeing like all these post-ops with the, with, the, with the teleconferencing. I think for me, I'm not wasting as much time like I was before, like just hanging out and talking more to the point, how you doing, let's just, let's move forward and I think I've become more efficient also doing telemedicine. Totally I think that uh, you know I'm seeing on my one day post-op cataract patients like that and, and, and Rania and I are doing a cool uh, telehealth uh, webinar coming up soon where I'm gonna actually you know hopefully show some of that we may put some of that video on when we release this uh, video or this uh, uh, webcast but but uh, it's been super efficient uh, and the patients love not having to come in you know, for that day one post-op. And uh, the reality is there's not a whole lot you're worried about on post-op day one cataract surgery. You're worried about pressure and I'm checking their pressure right on the table at the end of cataracts with a barricade tonometer. Of course, you're worried about tasks, but how, how, how rare is that? And, and God, if they do have it, you know, they're going to tell you on that telemedicine, you're going to be able to see their eye. They're not going to see anything. You're going to have corneal edema, et cetera. So, you know, I feel pretty confident doing, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, who are doing one day post-ops for FACO um, uh, and, and who, who have kind of stopped doing it uh, amidst COVID, uh, whereas before everyone kind of was doing it almost because of dogma. You were just taught that you had to see one day, one week, one month, and maybe that's not the case. And so telemedicine is helping in obvious ways like that. I, I, I wonder, Sumitra, I wonder if it's, I wonder if there's a place for telemedicine, maybe not so obvious ways, uh, specifically like in doctor to doctor consults at Baylor. Is there any like, is there any thought about how this can kind of morph to where like if I had a weird cornea question. You know, I could just like do a conference real quick with uh, with a doc at Baylor. Do you think that there's a market for that or, you know? I'm oh, absolutely. You know, we um, we get referrals from all over. Um, and also, you know, we actually before you can't really do telemedicine necessarily across state lines, but that's been lifted right now. And what that has found, like we have a lot of patients, um, you know, from the west part of, of Louisiana that come in that are pretty complicated. And we've been really creative with how we do, um, you know, doctor to doctor telemedicine visits. I mean, we've done scleral lens um, 
consults basically through telemedicine using an optometrist that wasn't that comfortable and my optometrist that is very comfortable um, because there was a, um, you know, a caveat where you couldn't cross the border for a while between Louisiana and Texas. But even, you know, even my satellite clinic, which is only 30 minutes away, I mean, we're really coming out of our box and we used to spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes on the phone with a physician, um, you know, a provider um, in the suburbs and kind of walking them through what to do. And now we're, we're really accepting the fact that you can actually do billing for this. And I think, you know, to anybody who says, you know, I just don't think the telemedicine is for me. It's impersonal. I'm just not sure I want to adopt it. I would encourage you to just try a couple of patients a week. Um, it doesn't have to be a game changer. It can be your follow-up dry eye patient. It can be a patient who has a red eye. It can be your pre-op on a patient who maybe canceled their cataract surgery and is you know, interested in it again. It's been two months and you just want to touch base with them because you'll really find that it is a connection that's very different um, with your patients. And if you have the right setup, um, you can really do very well with it. And I mean, I find it's much more personal. I mean, I have patients I've done cataract surgery on now that don't have no idea what I look like, right? I mean, we see them, we've got a mask on, we've never even seen them on their visit. My patient the other day said, I would love to see the way you actually look um, besides your Baylor picture, which, you know, I don't want to tell her that's from like seven years ago. Um, <laughs> but the reality is there is a little sense of, you know, face-to-face -face contact that we're missing right now. And when you have that time to speak with the patient on telemedicine, I think it's a great opportunity to reconnect with our patients, which we can't quite do right now in the office. It's interesting because, you know, we've been doing, we have a heavily, heavily refracted surgery oriented practice. It's 90% of what we do. And we've been seeing all of our refracted surgery evaluations as telemedicine remote. They come in for their testing and then I follow up with them uh, here. And this is my telemedicine room I'm sitting in actually. And um, it's been extremely efficient for what, like what Paul was saying, you know, I can sit down at the computer and I can see, I can see, you know, 12 to 15 people kind of in a row, extremely efficient, on time, no one has to wait, you know, and if they do have to wait, they're at home on their computer and they're not upset because they're not waiting here, they're getting work done, extremely efficient. We, we're using less staff to do all that. And the thing I was worried about was what is it, what's going to do to our conversion rates? You know, are we missing that personal touch that we're always so proud of? And we've actually had the highest conversion rates we've ever had. And it's not just because of the telemedicine, there's other factors, but the point is it's not hurting us. You know, it's certainly, it's been, it's been well received by everybody. So it's been a total game changer for us, for sure. Yeah, and to dovetail off what Lance was saying, I, I think it's interesting is that we're actually seeing more consults now because of the timing, right? Now patients can come in and I don't, they don't have to wait for my schedule, so I can do it after hours. I can come home from my family life and say, hey guys, hold on one second, I can be at home and I can just talk to the patient and do a consult, like less refractive consult at six o'clock in the evening where seven o'clock was more convenient for the patient and I'm not stuck in the office, so I can be at home. They've already had some testing earlier or a different day. So I think it opens up also more time slots for patients where they're working all day long and you can accommodate them at a different hour of the day. Yeah, um, again, just to dovetail on that, I've been doing most of my cataract counseling this way, and uh, there's no better way to talk to a patient about like premium IOLs or you know their refractive target um, than when they're at home with their families because you know, they're all kind of weighing in on all the decisions, they're asking questions together, mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, you kind of see them in their home environment. First of all, you get to know them much better and I think they get to know you much better, but they're more relaxed and the whole family can ask questions too. Um, and then if people can't be there physically, then 
we, um, we invite them on the Zoom call. So we're kind of having this group discussion. So I think that's really, really revolutionized our um, premium IOL counseling and really just refractive um, counseling in general. Definitely, we've noticed a higher conversion rate. Um, I've, I've seen that, uh, I've seen that uh, commented on several times. Yeah, yeah, for us, first two, we, we had our busiest LASIK month. Uh, and June was our busiest LASIK month we've ever had. You know, Friday, I'm doing 40 eyes for LASIK on Friday. That's, that's a ton for us. And uh, that's, it's not normal. And I really do attribute it to the LASIK virtual consultations um, that, uh, that, that Lance is doing. Um, you know, we're also doing uh, cataract uh, scheduling. I guess that's more teleorientation. But, but still, um, I, think that, uh, I think that's very important. Uh, and it's been, it's been fantastic for our conversion rate to advanced uh, implants. And I love what Sumitra said about actually making it more personal because that's the first time I've heard that. Uh, and it's absolutely correct. You know, I mean, they can see our face, you know, uh, we're not behind masks. So it actually may be more personal uh, to, to do it this way than to do it behind masks. That's really, that's brilliant. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that uh, telemedicine is here to stay. Um, I think it's one of these things that, um, that that's going to be one of the positives at the end, at the end of uh, this, this show, just for advanced warning, I'm going to ask all of you to kind of end on something positive that, uh, that, that we're going to take with us. Um, and that's kind of the, the point of all of this, of this uh, episode. And, you know, Lance, I think that, that one thing that I wanted to talk to you about um, is the idea of office-based surgery, because, you know, um, during the shutdown, um, you know, especially folks that are working at hospitals or a big part of universities, you know, there's state mandates uh, talking about OR space and, and, and P, uh, you know, uh, protective uh, uh, gear and all that type of stuff. And people, all their, 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 uh, their surgeries were canceled. Um, you know, I own my own ASC. So for us, we have a lot more control. Um, and I wonder if one thing that, that one, one thing that may change after all this is people wanting autonomy uh, in terms of, you know, that when they can operate, where they operate, that type of thing. Can you talk about sort of office-based surgery and maybe mention your experience with it? Yeah. So for exactly the reasons you said a couple of years ago, I determined that I really want to have more autonomy and control over the OR experience. I mean, I've been going to a, a really, really good ASC, open access ASC that provides excellent service and excellent equipment and everything else. But it still wasn't just, it was never the same as the LASIK experience that I could provide in my own office because I could control all the factors. Um, the patients were comfortable with the staff that they were seeing on the surgery day because it was the same staff that had seen them in their pre-op visits. And there was a, a continuum there that was, that was important. And we could never achieve that at the ASC. And I also didn't have control over equipment purchases and things that had to go through a committee and all that. So we made the change. Um, about two and a half years ago, we, we started our own uh, in-office suite with the help of um, IOR Partners uh, consulting firm and started our own in-office suite. Now, I never saw the pandemic coming, obviously, but when it did, I was really glad that we had done that because of everything you said, Blake. I mean, we could control, you know, the schedule, the distance of between appointments. Um, I could spread people out. I could control the number of people that were back there. Our protocols were in place, uh, supplies, you know, everything that we needed. And a lot of what, I mean, we all know this, ophthalmology, we are the redheaded stepchild of everything that has to do with institutional medicine, right? I mean, we just don't fit in to the OR routines. The <laughs> Nothing is like us. And so a lot of the policies that, you know, the ASCs or the hospitals have are well-intentioned, but they really don't apply to us. 
And so when you have Lance, your own center, Lance, you can Lance, decide to, what applies to you. Lance, I got to tell you, I, I, I always say that we're by far the most fun profession. I say we're, we're the banana daiquiri of medical professions if we were all drinks. That's what I say about ophthalmology. There you go. Yeah, to totally. And so, so yeah, for, for all those reasons, it's been really great to have our, have our center. Um, in Nebraska, there was a mandate that, that would shut down surgery anywhere, no matter where you were doing it. And I thought, I actually thought that was appropriate at the time. It didn't have a problem with it. But, you know, if there ever was another sort of mandate like that in our state, it probably wouldn't apply to in-office now. And when we saw that in Texas and about other places that had a mandate, it didn't apply to the in-office centers. So I think it does give us some flexibility in that way. And patients are just more comfortable too. Patients do not want to go into a hospital setting or even an ASC setting. Anything medical right now, these older patients are, are rightfully so kind of concerned to be out there. So they feel a lot more comfortable here. And so it's been a good thing for that reason for us. What's going on with your OR? Are you guys doing cataract surgery or what, what's sort of this, what's happening now? Well, we are, I mean, we, you know, there's, there's so many different types of surgery centers, even though we're an institution setting. I mean, our, our surgical center is eye only and it's, it happens to be in our clinic building on the first floor. It's definitely not in office. I mean, it, it is definitely a true surgery center with all the, um, you know, all of the uh, bells and whistles and all the extra pre-op stuff that has to go and the mandates as far as cleaning goes. But we do have a huge advantage in that if we were in our old place, which was about 10 years ago, in the med center, you know, in a hospital, outpatient center in the middle of the heart of the med center would be really tough. But luckily, you know, we're in our own kind of bubble, so to speak, with dermatology and plastic surgery and ophthalmology all being in the same building with our surgery center. But I also am at the VA um, three half days a week. And we're, we're, that's a true hospital and they have shut down all elective surgery unless it's priority one, which is like retinal detachments or glaucoma surgery where the patient's going to, you know, have permanent vision loss in the next two to three weeks. And they truly do have an issue with, you know, over filling ICUs. I mean, they've pulled some of our residents to do um, the COVID ICUs because right now our residents um, are better than the July interns um, because it's <laughs> July, you know, everything changed from June to July. The, uh, uh, the quality of a first year and a second year and a third year for the um, medicine wards changed dramatically. And so, you know, I'm seeing both sides of it um, and hopefully it, it'll improve. July is always tough for, for any field, but I can absolutely appreciate that our medicine colleagues and academic institutions are really feeling um, what July is right now. I love the idea of uh, in-office cataract surgery. I think we'll still need an ASC. I think there's no doubt um, an ASC is going to be uh, something I'm going to still use, but you know, we're building out our, our infrastructure for our own office. And we already do a lot of in-office surgery, blepharoplasties, a lot of MIGs, you know, even kind of blood needlings already, but we're not getting paid for it because we're not a, a center. So I think, you know, using a consulting firm like IOR, we're able to do some of our cases in the office now. And so that's going to be something we, we we're already planning on doing. We already got the uh, space already in the office. So for me, it's more of the control, like you said, Lance and, and Blake, for, for doing a lot of research, not having to worry about, you know, can you get, try a new product? or, you know, the flow and efficiency and the timing and having multiple doctors I and mean, all those little nuances, you know, it's not, for me, it's not even about making money. It's about breaking even in terms of just having the ability to have the control over, over our infrastructure. So for me, that's the exciting part of it. But I think you're still going to use an ASC and we're still planning on taking a lot of our patients to an ASC. So I think that hybrid of both ASC and, and in-office OR, I think is going to be a nice balance. So you were planning on doing this before uh, COVID hit, Paul, you were, you were already kind of signed up to kind of do a suite. Are you in one or two rooms or what are you... So we have, so right now, our, we have uh, right now we have uh, two office locations in, in our Kenosha office. 
we have right now 5,000 square feet. Now we, we took over the first floor. Uh, so now we're going to have another additional 5,000. So 10,000 square feet in this Kenosha location. And so as we're building out this whole new location, we already had room for an in-office suite just because we do in-office stuff anyways. Then we heard about these IOR people and, and it, we realized that it doesn't take a lot. That's what I think was and what surprised me more than anything else was it, it, it's feasible. At first, the concept of how do we get this approved and how do we get people to understand billing and you know, all the equipment, well, that's where consultants can really help you a great deal. And we realized it didn't take a lot of extra effort or even a lot of build out to just kind of make it where it would be approved for an in-office kind of a suite. So that so we kind of had that already last year before the COVID hit us, and now we're so thankful that we actually had it planned already. Rania, what's happening at Bascom? Is it kind of similar to what's happening with Symmetra? Because Miami, you know, it's getting hit, right? I mean. Yeah, it's a hotbed, but um, you know, we we have a very similar situation um, as Symmetra, where um, our our hospital and our um, OR are separate from the main hospital. And you know they've done a really good job of keeping everything as safe as possible. And I really feel like actually our patients feel like they're in safe hands, you know, when they when they come, and they feel much more comfortable than I would have thought, <laughs> actually. Um, so our our ORs have been really full, to tell you the truth. I mean, we do of course tons of um, non-elective stuff uh, where you know it really can't wait, um, and things that are transferred from other places um, nearby, because some of the other offices aren't doing. Um, aren't doing a lot of things. So anyway, we are very full in terms of non-elective uh, surgeries, but surprisingly with elective stuff too, just like cataract surgery, the schedules are really full. Surprising. <laughs> so Lance, you, I mean, is there, do you see, is there any, is there any safety uh, benefit to having an in-office suite? I mean, uh, uh, you, I, you always hear, you always hear people say that, that an in-office, you know, sur surgery suite is as safe as, you know, an ASC or, or traditional hospital setting. Is there any reason to believe it's safer just because less people, um, um, you know, they're not around as many yeah, patients? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I figure hospitals have very strict protocols, so maybe it's the same. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the way it could be safer is that it's so hyper-focused and specialized. I mean, if you if all you're doing in your center is one or two procedures, I mean, all we do here is RLE, cataract, and ICL. In our, in, our, in our interocular sit. That's it. I mean, nothing else goes here. So we can have protocols that are designed for those procedures only. And we're not mixing instruments with anything that ever touches blood or any other, you know. So, so there are some, some thoughts that perhaps it could be safer. Now that we're doing some studies through IOR to kind of prove, you know, some of these concepts of whether it's, of whether it's safer. Uh, but it's certainly not less safe. And, and when people, a lot of times people are surprised they come here to look at our center and they, they think that it's going to be like a, a, a garage or something with, you know, an operating table on it. But that's not <laughs> what this is. This is an operating room. It's a, it's a full, it, it's just like an ASC. I mean, this, it's, everything is just like an ASC. The difference is the accreditation that you go through to become an in-office suite is very different than the accreditation process you have to go through for the ASC. And so it's just the same in terms of all of that. Um, but hyper-specialized. And in fact, um, a lot of the protocols we have are at a higher level when it comes to eyes because that's all we care about. And there's lots of times the ASC protocols don't care about eyes. They care about, you know, other procedures and being more broad. So I can't tell you that it's more safe, but I think theoretically you could, you could find ways where it could be more safe over time. And Lance, there are some actually published studies on in-office showing in-ophthalmitis rates are actually lower than a lot of the hospitals in ASC. So I think we have data yeah. out there showing at least it's on par from a, yeah. an ophthalmitis risk. That's right. 
Yeah, like the data the data that we have so far shows that it, it has less complication rates than than an ASC, but but I'm being conservative and telling you, you know, we're still figuring all that out. It's certainly not less safe. Well, I tell you, when, when, when I've been thinking about sort of the way they've rolled out um, all the different mandates uh, at the federal and certainly state level, um, you know, they've been fairly flexible, like allowing different states and governors to kind of control the local area uh, or their state. And I, I, was, I was interested that, that they haven't done that as much uh, as it relates to healthcare, and specifically like when they mandate, you know, at the very beginning, they said no elective surgeries at all, right? A cataract surgery done in a specialty ASC like ours, which is just all we do, we're like Lance, all we do is cataract surgery in our ASC. We're not taking up any, you know, PPE. Um, you know, we're not taking up any uh, ICU beds. We're not taking up any ventilators. You know, it's very, very different. Um, and who's to say that a cataract is an elective procedure? I mean, tell that to my patients who were, you know, left with a minus six, you know, uh, a big old three plus nucleosclerosis in one eye, but I had done their first eye before COVID hit, you know, so, you know, I'm worried about them fa having falls and stuff. So I, I, I would hope that that one thing that we've learned from this pandemic is whenever we're shutting down elective, so-called elective surgeries, that aren't really elective if you ask me, but but you know, we be more nimble um, with how we do that. We consider the places that they're done, and and perhaps uh, having the the in-office suite uh, is something that can prepare you well for that. If God forbid, you know, something like this were to ever happen again. Um, I think also like what ends up happening is um, for some, you don't try something new unless you're kind of forced to do it. So I mean, for example, like there are certain procedures that in the past I wouldn't have done in my um, clinic or in my minor room. But, you know, there are certain instances, say it's a Friday afternoon, there's no OR available. We have a, you know, two to three clock hours of an open globe. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to wait till one o'clock. You're just going to put some sutures in the minor room as an example from a few years ago. You know, are you going to really get somebody out of pupillary block in the OR? No, you can actually pull them out of pupillary block in the minor room. So I think, you know, everybody has the potential to do more than they think they can in office. Um, and sometimes you're, you know, a person who goes out and really is, is more proactive, um, like you guys are, Lance and Paul. And sometimes it's something with a necessity. Um, but I think everybody should have a little bit more level of comfort um, that you can safely do things, especially if you need to um, in an in-office situation. Well, I think that's the one thing, you know, the one really, really good thing that's come out of all this is, I like what you said, you know, we can all do more than we think we can do. <laughs> um, we, uh, we've actually proven that um, throughout this pandemic. So we're finding these better ways to do things and things that make more sense. And um, we're just trying things that, you know, we wouldn't have normally tried. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we just had to make things work like any way we possibly could. And, you know, the best way to do that is to just jump with both feet into the water and try it out um, and see what works and what doesn't work and then go from there. <laughs> But isn't it interesting? The other thing I was gonna say, everything you just said that was really interesting is, you know, not only that when it comes to in office versus the medical side of it, but just the regulation. I find it so interesting that when there's an emergency, it's like all of a sudden, <laughs> all these things don't matter. Like everybody used to get all worked up about, you know, Zoom wasn't HIPAA compliant, so you couldn't use it for telemedicine. And then they're like, oh, never mind, that doesn't really matter right now. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, well, you can't cross state borders with telemedicine. Oh, wait, that doesn't matter either. And you can't bill unless you, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Oh, that doesn't matter. Like all of a sudden, all these little things don't matter in the, in the sense of, a, of an emergency. And I'm just, I'm curious how many of those things are going to come back 
you know, in the future, because we've kind of proven it doesn't matter. So it, I just find it fascinating how regulations fall away when there's a crisis. Yeah, well, a lot of the regulations are actually like just lobbyist um, pushed kind of initiatives. And so that, that don't actually make sense. So if you think about, you know, Medicare beneficiaries not being able to have um, telemedicine from home, I mean, who came up with that? Nobody right. in their right mind would ever come up with that. <laughs> like that, that was actually pushed <laughs> through um, by physicians, actually, um, because they didn't want the competition. But those are the types of, you know, things that just get thrown out the window when a, a true emergency like this occurs. Yeah, we needed a pandemic to uh, to uh, make telemedicine uh, even uh, you know feasible financially, people to do it, and the the speed at the with which mass moved to make all these changes. I mean, it's just you need a it's unfortunate you need a pandemic to do that. So you know, speaking of jumping in uh, head first and speaking of you know getting out of your comfort zone and and, and trying new things, the result of this bilateral simultaneous cataracts is something that's been a hot topic. And Samitra, I want you to kind of touch on this. Um, you know, it's, um, it, it makes great sense. I mean, you're reducing the amount of visits uh, that the patient has to make. Uh, certainly, you're creating efficiencies. Obviously, the biggest holdup has always been the payment, you know, uh, you're not getting paid as much for the second eye. So maybe can you talk about what your experience is with this and, and how it's changed throughout the pandemic, if, if at all? Well, you know, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, I've always had like one foot in two different places. You know, I have a very, you know, it's an academic center, but it's very privately run um, surgical center and clinic where revenue is very important. And so the fact that you only get 50% for the second eye is, you know, is a big deal like it is for everybody else. But I'm also at a, you know, government institution where everything's closed, right? So, so suddenly you take the reimbursement off the table and bilateral simultaneous cataract surgery makes a lot of sense in general, several studies out there showing that when it comes to travel, when it comes to overall expenses on the OR, when it comes to um, time, when you calculate turnover, um, when it comes to even safety in some of these elderly patients who have anisometropia and the difficulty, because you know, oftentimes the VA will pay for them to travel and come and see them. It makes complete sense um, to do that. And all they really needed was more studies, um, you know, similar to in-office procedures that backed up the safety. And so I think we've just done a great job with safety, with intracameral injections, um, with the ability to feel comfortable that cataract surgery has turned in the last 20 years into a very, um, you know, a very low complication um, type of surgery. And so I think now, you know, they're very comfortable there, you know, with, with bilateral simultaneous cataract surgery. You want to pick the right patient. Um, but one thing that we've had to change our minds is, I mean, just like when you do LASIK and, and if you have an issue with the first eye, do you do the second eye or not? Same with cataract surgery. You can, uh, you can approve both eyes. You can do the first eye. If there's some, you know, complication that occurs or some zonular weakness that wasn't recognized, you don't have to do the second eye. Nobody says you, that's a different mentality. You know, we're so used to being so conservative when it comes to cataract surgery. So We've really been able to see that. And, and with the private world, the issue has been the reimbursement, but also, I mean, there is a little bit other about like patients' expectations for outcomes and like the refractive error. And, and you know, I think that has been solved with great formulas with intraoperative aberrometry. Um, and, you know, perhaps you don't pay, pick the patient that has an anterior chamber death of 2.0, who's, you know, super hyperopic, who may get a strange outcome. But for generally for, for patients who have normal or even higher axial lengths, I mean, the formulas have showed excellent, excellent outcomes. Um, but I think really it comes down to logistically, it's very easy to schedule 
cataract surgery on two different days. I mean, we've really narrowed our post-operative um, appointments. I mean, we do our pre-op for the second eye, the day of our post-op, week three for our first eye. I do day zero visits, especially in my satellite clinic. I mean, we've streamlined, and so there's no headache for us to schedule it on two different days. But now we see the headache. I mean, we see, um, especially at our center, we do pre-op COVID testing on our patients. So the poor patients get the swab up the nose twice. Right. Um, you know, who pays for that is, is always in question. I mean, we bill it to the insurance, but at the end of the day, the surgery center is going to cover some of those costs. We um, have the other issue, which is our turnover, which is it's not too bad, but still it's pretty significant. Um, and they're not running extra rooms like they used to. Um, so we see now that all of the sudden we used to take such for granted that, you know, I would always have two rooms and I could knock out, you know, 15 cases and it would be easy and I go home for, you know, for, for a late lunch, but, but I don't see that anymore. I have one room. And so that's what makes you start thinking about things differently. But we should be really careful because we shouldn't take the second eye 50% reimbursement, um, you know, because that, that's, a, that's a really big deal. In my opinion, you know, the second eye, it's just as much risk as the first eye. I mean, we're still, you know, we all know that if you do a post-op day one and a post-op week three visit on one eye versus two eyes, yes, it's less post-op visits, but you're spending just as much time in the chair, right? Your technician is checking both eyes, checking both pressures, you're doing a dilated exam. And so we want to be careful. And I don't have the right answer to that. You know, I think that bilateral simultaneous cataract surgery makes a lot of sense right now. Um, and, and, but I mean, I'm just not sure that, that we should be giving up that 50% that on the second eye. I completely think, Paul, you know, you, 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 let's just say all things be, let's just say you did get 100% for the second eye. Would you immediately just start doing this tomorrow? Or are you concerned? Like, do you want to see how the first eye does in case you want to make a little shift in your lens choice for the second eye? Or what if a patient's unhappy with their multifocal lens? Now you're doing two explants instead of one. I mean, what, what are your, what, is it just about the, the, the reimbursement for you or? I think it's a combination of all those. I think what, what Samit just said was, was very uh, apropos. I think you have to just pick the patient, the correct patient. For me, it would be, you know, the right, the patient who does have, a say, a more uh, amotropic kind of an eye where you're, you know, let's say it is a, a standard IOL, patients, you know, understands that they have to wear glasses, that kind of a patient, elderly. I think that would be a fantastic patient, as Samit so eloquently mentioned, there's so many benefits to that, to bilateral simultaneous surgery. But yeah, if you're doing, you know, if you really want to nail these target refractive outcomes of doing mini mono and you want to test the first eye and second eye, I I think there is a, a, a benefit to seeing how they do the first week and then titrating the other eye as you need to. So I think you would be smart about it, I, but I do think it's worth a try. I think if you say, will I try it? If it's approved and I get you know, both reimbursement for both eyes equally, yeah, I would definitely start trying it on, on a select group of patients and seeing how that goes. And I think, as Sumitra mentioned, you know, we're doing a lot of bilateral glaucoma stuff all the time, bilateral Darista implants, bilateral SLT right now, because we're seeing the benefits from a flow perspective. And now we're like, wow, that is so much more, uh, I think, uh, more efficient. And even bilateral intravitreal injections for AMD patients, et cetera. So I think once you start doing it, you realize how much of a benefit is from an efficiency and flow and also patient satisfaction perspective as well. What about you, Lance? Because, you know, you're doing so many RLEs. Uh, so there's really not, especially if you're doing in the, in the, in your in-office OR, there's, you don't, I guess, you're not yeah. having to worry about that component from Medicare. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. We actually started doing uh, same day short interval um, RLE about four years ago um, at our ASC and um, we haven't we haven't looked back. I mean, I, I firmly believe it's it's a better procedure to do it that way because there are little things that you learn about that patient when you do the first eye that a week or two later you don't remember when you do the second eye. 
And it's subtle, but it helps. And the patient's calmer. They only have to come once. They only have to go through whatever anesthesia wants. They only have to, you know, it's just, it's better for the patient. There's no question about it. And the, the data is backing up the safety side of it too. So we've moved to that a while ago. And then in our own, and then when we moved to our own in-office suite a couple of years ago, we just continued that process and it's continued through it. And I think it's been, it's been great. The reimbursement issue on the, when it's a cataract, you know, does still remain but um, I think overall, you do make up those costs in the overall, at least the, it depends on the practice type that you have. But in our practice, we're, we're heavy, we have a heavy um, surgeon touch practice where a lot of staff time is involved in, in every visit and there's a lot that goes into it. And if you do the math, the, the half that you're missing on the, on, the, on the insurance side, you're at least breaking even by doing it bilaterally, I think. So, for us, that's been um, kind of the direction that we've gone. But I do agree, we shouldn't just sit and take that. We need to provide data so that we can we can show uh, the payers that not only is it beneficial for the surgeon, but it's beneficial for the patients and beneficial for the payer to do it bilateral as well, because they're saving on anesthesia costs and all these other costs that go along with it. So there, there's data out there to show that it's a win for everybody. And I think we need to do that because that is sort of the last thing that's keeping it from being the standard, I think. I mean, if, if I may, uh, uh, Blake, um, we should never just take it. I mean, that is not fair. Yeah. Like Sumitra said, it's the same risk. We're doing the same amount of work. Um, you know, if, if you're ever not sure, just think about what a lawyer would do. You know, if you spend an extra hour with that lawyer, they're still charging you the same amount, you know, even if it's the same day or a different day. Um, so we should think of it that way, but we should never take this stuff lying down. I mean, that's what got us into these reimbursement messes already. Um, and this is the perfect time to prove our case as to why it's safer and better for patients. I completely 100% agree with the COVID test and then waiting for the results and then having the post-op and decreasing their visits. Um, there's no better time to prove that uh, that case than right now. What are y'all doing at Bascom, Rania? Are y'all doing any bilateral same day or is it not there yet? Not there yet. Um, but, you know, everyone here on this call is a trendsetter and our institutions are trendsetters. And uh, I think that we should just take the ball and run with it. So um, I think this is something we should bring up. Yeah. yeah. Blake, to your point, I mean, I had a patient who was uh, a minus 11 and actually fell because of anisometropia postoperatively. So to your point, I mean, there's, there's definitely a number of situations where doing bilateral simultaneous surgery can be safer for the patient, like that issue there with the anisometropia. Well, I was going to say, I think it's an important distinction that we're talking about short interval surgery. It's not bilateral. We're not prepping both eyes at the same time and just moving over and doing it. You're mm -hmm. turning the room over. It's separate everything. So the difference is you're doing it five minutes apart instead of seven days apart or whatever it is, but it's still short interval. It's, it, they're separate procedures. They're, and, and if you do it right, they're statistically separate events. And so if you have statistically separate events with different materials and different instruments and different lot numbers and everything else, your risk of a bilateral infection or bilateral task goes to about one in 30 million if you back out the math. So you know, the chance of them having another incident in their life, whether it's a car accident on their way to their second surgery, or whether it's a fall at night, or, or whatever, whatever the risk of all that is much higher than anything that we're going to do, you yeah. know, so you have to look at the data. Yeah, yeah we also, we really see, um, it's interesting, because because everyone's like, no, one eye at a time, but I mean, we're exposing our residents to bilateral short interval cataract surgery. I mean, what we do actually is um, we do the first eye and staff 
Um, and then they do the second eye. Um, and there's really, it's so funny, they actually say, they're like, there's really like less pressure on me now because I know the patient had, you know, a pretty great surgery the first time. And, you know, we're doing the more dense cataract. We're doing the harder cataract. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'll learn things in the first eye. Like, you know what? That was actually a pretty floppy iris. I think you should put a malunion ring yep. in. Or, you know what? I mean, that was a kind of a really brittle um, anterior capsule. Let's see if we can do the second eye without tripan. And so to Lance's point, I mean, I do not remember those things. How many times have we go into the OR like two to three weeks later and you're like, oh no, I remember this iris. I should have put them out. Yeah. So, I mean, you yeah. really do. I mean, that's fresh in your mind if there's any issues with that first eye. Yeah. And not just, not just the surgeon, but the whole, the whole operating team, you know, because the patient's there and they're kind of ready for them, you know if there's a CRNA or whatever's going on, uh, they're all used to that patient now because they've all been working on it for 10 minutes. Now they do the other one and there's no surprises. So I'm just firmly convinced it's better for that reason as well. And you don't get that second eye syndrome where they're like, I doc, I remembered more the second time around. Why is that? <laughs> oh That's gone. Seriously. That's gone. That's gone. the best part about it. That's the best part about the whole thing. Yeah. And that's, that's such a great tip, too. I learned that from Rob Weinstock. He said, you need to call it a syndrome and tell the patient you have second eye syndrome. Like, it's your problem. Man. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I've learned that one. <laughs> I, 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 I use that every single week. You know, it's, it's so helpful. So that would be gone. And, you know, one thing that we hadn't brought up about this is, uh, you know, the old uh, adage that, uh, you know, we, uh, the doctors argue and patients decide. I mean, how many times a week do you hear your patients say, wait, I can't do them at the same time? I mean, this is what patients want. Ultimately. Yeah. So I think it's up to us to, you know, find a way. And CMS has been so nimble, uh, relatively speaking, uh, during this pandemic that I think now's the time, you know, uh, they need to change it up. And, and then we can actually see, you know, how it works if we if everyone starts to do it um, sort of mainstream, uh, because I think that's the sort of the future. Um, you know, Paul, I, I kind of want to move uh, into the glaucoma world a little bit. Um, that's why I'm so uh, excited that you are on the call. Um, if there's two positive things that have happened, I guess you could say, in ophthalmology as a result of COVID, as a LASIK surgeon, the, the, the mask fogging uh, has been tremendous uh, <laughs> because people are coming in because they don't want to wear their glasses because they fog up. But also, I'm having more and more people ask me about getting off their drops because they're hearing on the news that you shouldn't be putting your hands to your face with drops. So, you know, you have technologies like Darista that have just launched, and, and that's been fun to be, be put, putting in some of my patients. So can you kind of touch on uh, sort of the MIG space and what's happening, you know, and, and how it all relates to, to, you know, getting back to practice post-COVID? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, mean, I, I wish I had more time. I could, I could do like a whole two-hour discussion on this, but <laughs> it's, been it's been fun. You know, as a glaucoma uh, uh, specialist, I think that we've seen such an incredible proliferation of technology in the last, you know, last couple of years, few years, five years even. And, you know, what we're seeing is this mindset change for our patients and, and us as providers, this interventional mindset where we realize from a, just from a medical perspective and a patient, I think, health perspective, compliance sucks. And we do know that we're not doing a great job of maintaining a stable IOP and compliance is an issue, whether it's cost, side effects, et cetera. But now with the COVID, we're hearing a lot of patients coming in saying, I don't want to go to my pharmacy to get my refills, I'm, or I have a, my, my daughter has to come to my house to put my drops in my eye, or for some reason, I have, I have a hard time physically putting in there. They're kind of rubbing everywhere, the whole face. And so from a safety perspective, there, there's a lot of concern. So we're hearing a lot more patients and 
I think we're seeing a lot more patients being more accepting of some type of intervention, but it's SLT, and the light study's shown that to be as efficacious as drops, but less chance for a need for incisional surgery. So compliance might be the reason why. Uh, we're also seeing patients saying, yeah, you know what, drug delivery. Patients, there's a number of patients who are on even multiple drops where you say, look, if I can put this little drug, I don't say inject, if I can gently place the small medicine in your eye that releases medicine over six months, or even potentially a year, even longer, I have the potential to get you off that drop for a while, whether it's saving money or physically saving the ability to have to put a drop in the eye. Because what's nice about Darista uh, is the fact that it's Medicare Part B coverage. It's not a D, Part D plan. So if someone has a Medicare fee for service and a supplement, it's actually, quote, unquote, cash flow free for them. So for these patients who are complaining of cost of a gen generic med or brand name medication, doesn't want to go to the pharmacy every, every month, et cetera, I can do this in the office. Both eyes I can do within very efficiently, within just a few minutes, both eyes are done. They're very comfortable. And I have to go to an ASC or a hospital. I can get them off the medication, whether it's six months or even longer. And so for, for me, all of a sudden, we're just you know, offering this to patients and we're hearing patients say, yeah, doc, this would be great. I was surprised of how amenable patients are to having it done. Now, we're performing it at the slit lamp. You know, initially when Darista was, was part of the studies, it was at the supine. You put, lad the patient down and you put the, the uh, 20 gauge needle in the, in the paracentesis type of uh, procedure. But now at the slit lamp, it's even easier for patients. I don't use a, a speculum. I don't use a second instrument. Just go in and out. And literally within a few seconds, you have this medicine in the eye. So I think all encompassing as a uh, field, I think, I think ophthalmology in general is, is moving towards drug delivery, but I think now glaucoma is catching up. And then take it to the MIG space, not to take too much time here, but one of the reasons why MIGS has not taken off as a standalone, a number of doctors feel very comfortable doing a stent or some discodilation during the cataract, because if you don't achieve that end result of pressure reduction without meds, the patient's happy with the cataract. But to do a standalone MIGS, you got to deliver on that promise of either reduction of meds or reduction of pressure. And if you don't deliver, you're, you're kind of feeling bad. Well, now you have uh, something like Darista, where if, let's say you do do the MIGS procedure standalone, and after surgery, the patient's just back on a drop. They're like, oh man, I'm sorry. Hey, don't worry about it. I got this little medicine I can gently place your eye. We can try to get you off the drops for a while. And you're honest with them. It may not last for more than six months or a year or two years. We'll have to wait and see. But you have that opportunity to get them off the medication. So to me, I think what, what COVID has done is allowed us to open our minds a little bit, but it's also allowed patients to say, yeah, you know what, I'm willing to try this because the benefits way outweigh the risk of not having to go to a pharmacy, having someone put in the eye, physically having to touch my eye. So I think glaucoma is heading to this interventional mindset, whether it's MIGS, Darista, drug delivery, other drug deliveries coming down the road, or even SLT. I think we have a better chance of protecting our patients both from a physical perspective and from their glaucoma. Well, I, I'll just say really quick, um, you know, a lot of the things that we're working on uh, for telemedicine are sort of remote monitoring uh, devices, and one of those is IOP monitoring. Um, but I like your points. I mean, rather than having to monitor the patient continuously because we're afraid of non-compliance, why don't we just give them something that works better? <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, right. your points 20, yeah. 24-hour IOP is going to be huge. I think Eye Care Home, we're utilizing that now. We're taking them at home to see what's happening outside of the office hours. And I think there's something to be said about 24-hour release of a medicine over you know, the time, I think there's something that it is probably changing some of the actual biomechanical properties of the eye. So probably a better chance of further reduction of pressure long-term by having a consistently released medicine. Yeah, exactly. Are there other companies, Paul, in the glaucoma space that, that, are, that are either at market or close to market um, with like uh, AI-based like uh, HBFs and stuff that you would actually believe, like if it was your family member type of thing? Do you think for, for drug delivery or for AI? You're talking about for AI, like visual fields and stuff oh, like that. I'm just yeah. talking about how, how do we keep patients from having to come in to sit there 
and get their visual field. Early on in COVID, we were worried about their head in the bowl and like, <laughs> how do you disinfect the bowl? And Zeiss put out the thing about how to disinfect the bowl. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking, can they not do that? Oh, on how to disinfect the bowl? There's, 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 <laughs> there's a few companies working on AI, um, at visual field machine, even even like even your iPad. Should doing it with on the iPad and being able to kind of uh, consistently give you a defect. Uh, good screening tools with the iPhones. There's actually virtual reality goggles. There's multiple companies are making that right now that you can have patients you know just pick it up and do it at home if you need to. So yes, I think you're right. I think both IOP monitoring and visual field testing. And there's a number of companies working on even kind of access to in-office uh, or actually at home OCTs or even kiosk OTT, OCTs where you have a, a, a sterile kind of a plate, place mask, you put it on there, it takes a scan and you go home. So I think within the next few years, next five years, you're going to see a number of different products that are going to help us with in office, but also rather in home and mobile testing for OCTs, visual fields and IOP. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's a, I'll put in a plug for um, for what we're working on at Bascom. Uh, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Abushusha, um, has a uh, an algorithm that's for visual fields as well as a few other things, but it works on um, like the Microsoft HoloLens. And you know, the idea is that this is something that doesn't need to be cleaned, um, you know, painstakingly and all that, and it's very mobile and open. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed with these things. And then um, Nodal has a product, which is the home OCT and uh, works very similarly to the, the home um, Amsler that they do as well, the 4C home. Very cool. That's awesome. Good stuff, yeah. A lot of innovations coming out. You know, so, uh, Blake, you said that yeah. there were, you know, certain silver linings of the pandemic, you know, the patients who want LASIK because of mask fogging and patients not wanting to have drops. But I think one thing that has also been a silver lining is just to see, you know, I think we we're all so busy with our day to day. We were all seeing 50 patients a day or whatnot. And we've all gotten a chance to take a deep breath in our clinics and look around and maybe start to address some of the things that we were too busy to address and step out of our box. And I think for a lot of people, it's given a reset um, in the way they practice. Um, and, you know, I think people have learned more um, on webinars, on um, virtual learning, but also just, you know, what other people are doing. I think we're communicating more practice to practice than we've ever done. I mean, I definitely heard you know, all from all of you um, about, you know, all the knowledge you have, but I've never sat down and listened to your practices. And now we're sharing practice patterns on a whole new level. So I think that's just been another silver lining. It was interesting. I was on a call today where Texas Medical Center was saying, this is the longest that we've ever been in a public health emergency or a, an emergency, right? So usually we think of emergencies, you think of hurricanes, you think of flooding. Well, that's Houston. That's what I think of. Um, but this is the longest state of emergency we've been in. And the silver line they came out with is, look, guys, we can handle it. And I think that's something that's been somewhat uplifting for us is just looking at what good has come. And this is like a very disruptive time in our lives, but it's also brought some really interesting technologies um, and really uh, a way to showcase stuff that, you know, I didn't even know all the stuff that Rania did in her, you know, technology <laughs> world. And now I know all about it. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, so I, th I think that's kind of a good place to kind of, uh, as we start to close, I want to go around and, and kind of hear something like that from, from all of you. You know, Sumitra, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, if, if they, they say if, if necessity is the, is the mother invention, you know, the father is crisis, you know, and it's, it's, it's forced us all to look at, at how we do everything. I love how you talk about how you seem to know more about your colleagues now than before. It's because we're communicating more, which is crazy. Like the world closes, uh, we can't travel and see each other, but we're actually communicating more than we ever did before. So I think for me, that's my silver lining. Rania, why don't you go and then, uh, 
and then we'll do Lance and, and Paul, you're going to bring us home. Yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, one of the first things that happened after the pandemic is we started having all these webinars and we started these chat groups and, um, and group emails where everyone could collaborate and everyone was kind of sharing their best practices and ideas. And I really love that. Like I've, I've always kind of been a very collaborative person and, um, and I loved how no one was kind of competing with each other to get the leg up or anything, you know, all institutions were sort of helping each other. We were helping the little guys, the big guys, it didn't really matter. Um, so definitely that sense of closeness and collaboration um, has really improved and it's improved even with the patients too. Like I said, now, you know, they're getting used to the fact that their, their family members can be part of an exam also, you know, or I might ask one of, you know, you know, Paul to weigh in on their glaucoma for me, you know, um, and that kind of thing. So it's, we're watching evo the evolution of ophthalmology and it's really amazing. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot over the past few months and I think there's, um, I, I read this somewhere and it really resonated with me that there's two things that have come out of this pandemic and this is society-wide. It's not just ophthalmology, but it's certainly there's, a, there's examples within ophthalmology. Two things that I think are happening. One is remote. So we're learning how to do things remotely, and we're demonstrating this tonight with this webinar. We've demonstrated it since April with webinars. You know, ASCRS was canceled, and yet we're all talking more than ever. So I think we've kind of learned that, and we talked a lot about telemedicine as another example of remote. So I think that's happening. I think it's positive. The other one is acceleration. And so what, what a crisis is forcing us to do is accelerate things that were going to happen anyway. So, you know, we invested in telemedicine equipment like a year ago because we saw it as the future, but we never really got around to using it all that much because we were busy being busy. And so this has forced us to accelerate that. And it's forcing, I think, a lot of changes that would have happened anyway. Uh, how about bilateral cataract surgery? We just talked about that. that. That was going to happen. Now this is forcing that to happen. So all these things are, are happening at accelerated pace. So I think those two things are, are what I would take away as positives. These are some great points, and I, I have to agree with everybody's comments, no doubt. I think I'm going to take a little personal. I, I, um, I think it, it, it allowed us and it, it created an opportunity for us to really evaluate our lives. And I'm going to be a, <laughs> a little personal here, but look, we all go crazy, right? We're all trying to, what are we chasing in life? What are we really chasing, right? Why are we doing all, what are we do, why are we doing all this? What's important to us? And I think it just causes us to reevaluate what's important to us personally, our families, what is it at our practice? What do we love about seeing our patients? What do we love about ophthalmology? It's, a, it's, it's the interaction. It's this, it's seeing you people on, on right now makes me happy, it's seeing my patients in the office. And it just, it, it's ignited this fire in me that says, yeah, man, this is really what I love doing. And so I think for me, that's really what helped me the most. Now, everything you're all saying about kind of reevaluating what your efficiency in the office and flows and, and accelerating these things, these are all, I think, what's, uh, what's happening. But to me, it was this reignition of the fire of, I think, reconfirmation that this is what I love doing. And at the same time, how do I manage, how do I balance my life with my family, with work, with speaking and all these other things that we all do. And so to me, that was what this has really allowed me to do as well. But everything you all said, I think is also apropos, no doubt. It's funny, you know, I feel, I feel the same way. I was telling my wife, that this seems like the biggest gift that I get to spend so much time at home. Uh, you know, and she said it's the exact opposite for her. It's a nightmare because <laughs> I'm always messing everything up and not cleaning up, uh, cleaning up after myself. But, but uh, no, so I, I agree. Um, listen, um, I've really enjoyed talking to, to, to all of you. Um, and uh, I know that this is being streamed on Facebook and also it's going to be sent out later on uh, for folks to kind of uh, uh, you know, download and, and, and watch or listen to. Um, I appreciate uh, everything that you guys are doing. 
to kind of lead the way. I've learned so much from each of you every time. Uh, so I want to thank all the panelists uh, for, for being on this episode of uh, uh, Back to Practice and certainly want to thank the folks at BMC and all of the sponsors for making it possible. So until the next episode, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, an AbV company, Johnson & Johnson Vision, and IOR Partners for Office-Based Surgery. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.